I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Hi everyone and welcome to the Dynamics 365 Practice Show. We're covering a really interesting topic today and that is the non-for-profit space and the Microsoft Non-for-Profit Accelerator. We explore challenges currently facing the industry and what Microsoft is doing to support this. Let's welcome Dan Lamont to the show, CEO of Threshold.World. Do you have customers with field sales teams? Then you need to get in touch with MapTasker. Their solution enables businesses with field-based teams to lower their operating costs and increase productivity using the power of geospatial and location intelligence. Their field sales for Dynamics 365 product includes advanced capabilities that empowers effective territory management, optimized journey and route planning, and much more to enable companies with field-based teams to be at the top of their game. Field sales for Dynamics 365 also comes with their native iOS and Android apps, so field reps can easily access Dynamics 365 data on the go. Download your free version today from the Apple app or Google Play stores. Now let's get on with the show. Full show notes can be found for this episode at nz365guy.com forward slash 114. Hi Dan, welcome to the Dynamics 365 practice show. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity. Great to have you on the show, and and I think you've got a you know got an exciting topic around the whole not for profits space, and you know what Microsoft's doing and the accelerators for non for profit sector. In my past, I've done a lot of work working for non for profits using Dynamics three six five. It's been a good fit for for many organisations that I've seen in my experience. But before we get underway and and, and unpacking kind of your journey in the non for profit space. What part of the world do you hail from and what do you do in your spare time? I currently live just outside of Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in a town called Villanova with my wife and kids and a couple of dogs. And we spend a a good bit of time in Puerto Rico as well, where she's from and where our kids are born. Anytime I get a chance, I'll go for a surf. It's Mm kind of ironic that I live about 77 miles away from the water, but that's, that's where life's led us. And get a good bit of time to go for a surf down in Puerto Rico when we're spending time down there. So that's my passion outside of work. Nice, nice. So other surf beaches, are they are they safe? Are they left-hand or right-hand breaks? What's a, what's a common layout in Puerto Rico? The surf there is pretty world-class, believe it or not. It's, you know, aside from the water being warm and there being a lot of wildlife, it's really exciting to see when you're sitting in the water. It's you got lefts, you got rights, you got reef breaks, you got beach breaks, and, and depending on where the swell's coming from, you can get world-class waves just about any time. So it's a great spot. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. And so what do you do in your hometown now when you're kind of not surfing? If I'm not surfing and I'm not working, then it's family time. The rest of the time, it's, as, as you know, when you're running a new company and 
working on building a movement around technology, it's, it's uh, pretty consuming. And so, so if I'm not doing that, then we're doing things with the kids and they're, they're at the age where there's lots of soccer games and things like that going on. So we get, get good quality family time and a lot of outdoor time and just doing things with them. Okay. I've, I've never been to Pennsylvania. What's it known for? What's the, the things to do there? It's a big state, and the eastern part where, where we live, Philadelphia's got a lot of history in it, you know, aside from being the kind of the place where the country was, was born way back when. Okay, okay. The more fun things it's known for are, are cheesesteaks. So if you ever if you ever come to town, we'll go down to Pat's Cheesesteaks and get a cheesesteak and maybe go catch a sporting event. Nice. Sounds awesome. Sounds, sounds, sounds fantastic. So you're in the non-for-profit sector. Yep. Tell us, how, how did you get into that? Well, kind of by accident, like a lot of people. <laughs> I spent a lot of years, the early part of my career, doing uh, banking and banking technology. Got really involved in, in CRM in the, uh, the banking world. Started to work for progressively smaller companies to, to try to you know, accelerate the pace of change and adoption of CRM technologies to, to mm-hmm. unify the kind of global banking environment within bigger institutions. And with a group of folks, ended up being part of the founding team of a company that, that was doing Siebel implementations for large multinational banks. And fairly quickly after we got started with that, we got into working with a company called Salesforce. Mm-hmm. And that led us to, to banks and Salesforce. And then that company grew and was, was sold, ironically, just before the financial crisis in 2007. And then we, a couple of years later, launched another company focused on the educational market with Salesforce Technologies. And mm-hmm. by happenstance, one of the sales people that we spent a lot of time with said, hey, there's this nonprofit up in Boston that's a really influential public media organization called WGBH. And one of the leaders at WGBH said, you know, I really would like to work with you all to, to build a cloud-based fundraising system. And that's how we okay. got, our, got our start. And so we very quickly pivoted the company within a few months and moved from education to nonprofit and spent a bunch of years working on nonprofit technology. So, so in this space, is Blackboard kind of the big brand, you know, in my experience, you know, I, I've, I've built systems for Red Cross, mm-hmm. I built big, big systems. I built one... One solution that gave out over a hundred million dollars in grant money in a space about two months after the Christchurch earthquake, and you know, I know that when I competed for that deal, I was up against this product called Blackboard or this business called Blackboard. Was that something that you came up against in Round Corner as well? Very much so. Yeah, Blackboard's been around for many, many years. They've, you know, in in many ways have dominated the marketplace through technology they've built proprietarily, but also through a lot of acquisitions that they've made. Mm-hmm. You know, on the on the plus side, they've you know done a great service for the market by delivering high quality technology over the years. And like any big company, there's mixed feelings about their their stance. But and at Round Corner, we did compete almost exclusively, especially in the enterprise space with with Blackbaud, and won sometimes and, and lost sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you ended up selling that company, right? And that became part of the Salesforce acquire it directly. Yes, yeah. The part of Salesforce that purchased Round Corner is was Salesforce.org, which is the was the philanthropic partner of Salesforce.com, which which subsequently in the last month or two has has become part of Salesforce.com itself. Wow. Okay. I didn't I didn't even know that they had this uh, .org part of their business. Yeah. It uh, when we started Round Corner, it was a very small organization in terms of employee size, but was was doing quite a lot to provision Salesforce technologies for nonprofits. But even though it was a half a dozen team members or so, they were 
really focused as as you know people that follow Salesforce will know from the very outset on on making philanthropy part of their business mission. Mm-hmm. And then I think you know I don't know what the exact employee count is or was you know today, but it's quite a large organization with global reach and tens of thousands of customers. So they've they've really grown over the past decade or so. So you obviously have a lot of experience in understanding this non for profit sector. Well, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, but thanks for saying <laughs> it's a, <laughs> it's a huge sector and it's got an incredible amount of diversity within it. And you know, there's all different types of nonprofits that you know raise money and make investments and deliver programs. And so I feel I feel like I've got a, a good beat on some of the processes that they focus mm-hmm. on and have been been you know working on technology in the sector for a decade or so, but still so much to learn. So you exited that business. What made you take a look at Microsoft? Well, it it was really three things. You know, the first was that it just seemed like, and and I think this is really proven true now that I'm working directly with Microsoft for about seven months or so, it just seemed like there was a renaissance happening here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd been in the Salesforce space for 15 years and, and frankly, hadn't really paid a whole lot of attention to what was going on elsewhere. And, and you started to see Microsoft pop up more, started to see Satya pop up more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it looked, it looked like something was happening here that was meaningful and that it was really backed by, you know, culture and an ethos for partnership. So that was, that was interesting. The second was that, that we started to see Microsoft come up more in customers' minds because mm-hmm. they, they saw potential for interoperability of systems based on, you know, the new Microsoft technology that's that's out and still evolving. And to me, that was a, a really important theme was, you know, stuff's got to work together for any any organization that adopts technology, but certainly for nonprofits who, who may have more constrained budgets and resourcing. And the last was that there's this, this person that works inside of the Microsoft Tech for Social Impact group named, named Eric Arnold, who's the global CTO. And we saw him move over into Microsoft Mm-hmm. And take on that role as the global CTO to to help define solutions purpose built for nonprofits as part of this overall industry vision and industry accelerator vision and th- and that really is what initiated the conversation was seeing this this gentleman named Eric move over and and that um, knowing Eric and knowing his background was was something that we we paid attention to and that I paid attention to because he's an authentic real person that's doing this for all the right reasons and really wants to, you know, given his history in the sector, wants to make sure that things are, are going to be, be as they should be for, for any customer, but certainly for nonprofits. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got a feeling I've met Eric recently. Mm. Uh, when I say met him, he was presenting, I think, at a Hack for Good event I was at in yeah. Atlanta. Yeah, yep. I'm, pre- yep. I'm pretty sure he headed up the Microsoft part of that engagement. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. When you see somebody like that make a move, you know, mm-hmm. you, you take notice and, you know, I, uh, again, now being here for seven months or so working with the Tech for Social Impact team, it's it's really wonderful to partner with that group. And, and so we'll probably talk about in a bit, he's got a great vision for where Tech for Social Impact is going to go with solutions. So just tell us a bit about Tech for Social Impact, What, what as a lot of people won't know what it is and where it sits. Yeah, it's it is it's part of Microsoft Philanthropies. And it's it's headed up by a gentleman named Justin Spellhog. He's got a, a leadership team which Eric and, and others are included in, and and their their job is to you know really to define solutions and, and enable successful nonprofit adoption and development of an e- ecosystem around Microsoft technologies, specifically focused on on nonprofits. 
And they, you know, they're doing that through revising licensing schemes and, and improving just the general accessibility of Microsoft technologies in the space. That was really a huge first step that they, they took right out of the gate. They're also working on industry solutions like the Nonprofit Accelerator and, and contributing to sector-wide initiatives like the Nonprofit Common Data Model. And they're working really hard to, to develop an ecosystem of partners, both SIs and ISVs, that are building with and connecting to Microsoft technologies to try to serve nonprofits better in, in adoption of, of the full suite of, of Microsoft uh, stuff, so to speak. And so they're they're a very busy team. And but ultimately, if you really boil it down, there they have a stewardship role in in their view to ensure that Microsoft's doing the right things as it relates to technology and nonprofits. Yeah, very good, very good. Is this kind of a recent a recent initiative, particularly in the Microsoft Biz App space, that they're getting this heavily involved around creating a data model for non-for-profits? Yeah, it's really just a couple of years old. And, you know, while M- Microsoft has been very involved in philanthropies and in a host of different initiatives, that, including investments and, you know, AI for Earth programs, and mm-hmm. addressing homelessness challenges in, in cities they live in. This this is different in that it, it expands that to say, you know, look, Microsoft's got great technology, you know, it's evolving, it's going to be going interesting places, and it it is hard to use it out of the box in some cases and Microsoft wants to take a step further by really focusing on the industry-specific needs that nonprofits in all their diversity have and help close that gap you know, to, to de- decrease the cost to implement and at the same time ensure longer-term sustainability for, for nonprofit customers that adopt. So it's, it, that's, that's a big, big task. <laughs> it's a journey. It's a marathon, you know, so to speak. And, and I think the, it's really clear that a, a, a fundamental tenet of this initiative is that Microsoft's not, not doing this alone, knows that they can't do it alone. They're really taking a, a partner-centric approach to, to this effort, and, which includes us and, and many others, and collaborating with a, and a sector-wide group of, of experts as well as customers and prospective customers and customer steering mm-hmm. teams and, and partners alike to try to define things that will actually you know, have a, a, a significantly meaningful impact for the market. Fantastic. So tell me then about Threshold, your new startup. Is, is it threshold.world? Is that the address for the website? Yeah, the official name is threshold.world, and the website is actually threshold.world. Mm-hmm. And this company is, is a relatively new initiative. It's, it's about seven months old. And as it says on the website, you know, the, the, the vision behind this is that we, we believe the, the world is at a threshold moment. And mm-hmm. the decisions we make at this point in time are going to determine the future for life on the planet. And while, you know, technology's had a huge role in, in addressing societal challenges, we really feel like that with where technology is today, that story is just beginning and we want to play a role in that. So, so that's what we're, we're doing is we're trying to find the, the most efficient and impactful ways to, to see how technology can accelerate the pace of social change in a world where, where we really need that to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you use the word threshold that you believe the world's at, at a threshold point, and normally I hear the word, you know, transformation point or something like that, you know, is, is the word at the moment. Tell me a bit about what you mean by threshold. Sure. Yeah. Are you familiar with the sustainable development goals? Mm-hmm. So the, the idea for the name actually came from trying to study, you know, what are the areas of greatest need? And the, the United Nations, among many other partners, has come together and put together the Sustainable Development Goals. 
And if, if you read the goals and you read the annual reports on global progress towards those goals, one thing comes up over and over again is that to, to know where you are relative to a goal, you've got to be able to measure where you were, where you are, and where you think you're going. And so the goals have targets. The targets have something called indicators, which are essentially quantifiable progress towards or, or away from a target. And each of them have thresholds. And the one that really stuck out to me within that was the, the temperature of the planet. And being a, a surfer and, and someone who cares a lot about the environment, among many other causes, you know, there's still a lot of talk these days about the, the threshold of 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees and what impact that's going to have. And so that's, that's actually what spurred the idea was, was studying the goals and understanding, you know, that this, there's this movement around trying to, you know, mobilize everybody on the planet to, to, you know, do more, to try to protect our environment, to try to support each other, bring more equity into society, you know, protect the species on the planet. And so that's, that's really where the name came from. So, so the, and the, the dot in the name, the, the, the dot world is the, the point in time that we're at today. So that's, that's how it all came together. I like it. I like it. So tell me, what's your role and what do you see the vision of your businesses? So I'm, I'm honored to serve in the, the role of CEO with a, a growing team that's bringing together kind of a mix of startup and software development experience in the cloud and coupled with a real passion for doing things that matter. And I'm, I'm also a co-founder of the organization. And the vision I have is, is really based on the, the last 10 years of work. I spent a lot of time working in nonprofit fundraising, helping organizations try to raise more funds to support their missions. Spent a lot of time in, in grant making, where organizations were either directly or indirectly making investments in, in the, the missions that they cared about. Mm-hmm. And this time around, our focus is going to be on the impact side, where nonprofits are actually delivering the work. And we're going to be looking at technology's role in measuring, monitoring, evaluating, learning from, and improving the programmatic outcomes that nonprofits seek to achieve either directly or through their partnerships. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, so we're sort of at the, the tail end of the spectrum, but the, the key focus that we're, we're really looking at there is the, the association to the beneficiary. You know, it's one thing to say, you know, we, we dug a well, and you can count that, right? You dug a well, mm-hmm. that's great, mm-hmm. that, that's an output. But the question is, what's the, the near-term outcome that happens as a result of that? Maybe 30 girls and, and other young boys in a village get to go to school. That's also mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. But the, the big question that's much tougher to get at is, what's, what's the actual impact that that results in? Right? What's the societal change that occurs as a, as a result of that, that initial action? And then how do you ensure that there's transparency back to the supporters and donors at the beginning of that process about that output outcome impact spectrum? And, and given where we are with AI, ML, and augmented analytics, you know, how can those things help nonprofits and funders make better decisions about the things they invest in? We want to try to accelerate the pace of change by mm-hmm. using technology. And so this is really about looking at that, that's those specific actions that take place, those interventions that get deployed, and try to bring more meaningful insights into those decisions. Interesting. So one of the non-for-profits I worked with in the past was World Vision. And one of the things that they they said was that donors more than ever want to kind of get up and close and personal with where their money's going. They don't want just, what is it, a letter or, 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 or something like that. They really want to kind of understand what is their money being spent on. And even in, in a lot of cases, they want to go visit where it's been spent. So do you see a, a change or a pivot in the way non-for-profits are now 
I feel like being accountable and engaging with the donor community. Yeah, very, very, very much so. And I think that's that's a broader societal thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. You know, as, as an example, if you go to Airbnb, book a place on Airbnb, you can you can also book an experience at the same time, right? People want, you know, despite our connectivity and our ability to hop on a, you know, a steel tube and basically fly anywhere around the planet, we we, we lack this sense of meaning. And now more than ever, and we see this in the data, the younger generations, they want to do things that matter, right? Mm-hmm. They will accept less pay for more meaningful work. And, and they ought not to, to have to do that, right? But, but I think ultimately people want to see the impact of their choices. They want to experience it, you know, as, as, an, as an aside, you know, one in four people in the United States volunteers for a nonprofit every year. And they do that because they want to feel that, right? They want that proximity to the the impact itself. They want to see the people that they're helping. And if they're far away, they want to know about it. But but the the interesting thing within all of that is is that with within the technology space, you know, we can we can collapse the distance between a donor and a beneficiary quite easily. You know, you can allow someone to to select the animal that they want to you know gift or pro- provide for a market. You can enable correspondence either digitally or otherwise between these organizations but but the concept of safeguarding right and protecting the beneficiary's information protecting the donor's information in this connected space is more important than ever so you know it's it's one thing to be able to do it it's another to be able to do it in a safe and secure way and so mm-hmm. this this theme of trust is is just as important as being able to create that connection yeah, yeah. And so what, what role does volunteer tourism type planet as well? Yeah, I think it actually has a big role, right? I think, I think that, you know, those are the kinds of memories that people want to build. They're the things that people take home with them more than, you know, buying a coffee cup or, or you know, perhaps even, you know, just seeing a monument. You know, those human interactions are, are really special or, or those animal interactions are really special. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the growth of things like ecotourism and, and other types of activities like that around the, the world are, are really on the rise for, for the reasons you stated. So so I think that I think we'll see lots more volunteerism. I think we'll see more episodic volunteerism. And I, and I think that, you know, nonprofits want to capture those moments and then steward those relationships over the long term so that we'll see we'll see the the introduction of more and more technology into that to try to, to sustain those connections because it is a very competitive market in the nonprofit space. Right. And, and people are, you know, the generations before us tended to donate generally to, you know, one or two institutions and they, and they did it with trust. Often it was the religious affiliation that they had. Right. Or, or if you cared about poverty, you just picked the big poverty organization. Mm -hmm. But the data says that, you know, we're going to see a lot more small micro donations. Younger donors are more fickle. And a lot of their donation is going to be, and their support is going to be based on that experience and what, and the give-get, you know, equation that comes out of those those, uh, those support actions. So, so let's unpack a few statistics around the non-for-profit sector because I've got a feeling that I don't understand, if you like, how big this the sector is, not just, you know, in North America, but Europe and the world. Sure. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I was shocked about it when we started to think about non-profits as well. And I think that especially if you're in the technology sector and your business is driven by you know, selling SaaS-based software or, or licenses or transaction volumes, et cetera. They, these, there's really only three numbers you, you need to know. There are many mm-hmm. that are meaningful, but the, but if you're thinking about this as a technologist or as a business opportunity, 
where you want to have impact and you know run a viable business. You really just need to know that there's more than four million nonprofits globally. Wow, about a million and a half in the United States, right? Depending on which which way you want to look at it, whether they're registered or unregistered, etc. So the first one is that there's millions of nonprofits globally, and and as you'd expect, there's bit there's really big ones and there's lots of really small ones. The second number that that's important to to know is that the nonprofit sector, if you include education and health, which are qualified nonprofits in the U.S. generally, it's the third largest sector of employment in the United States. So there are lots and lots of people that work at nonprofits, and they they you know again there's a diversity of roles within that. You have people in health and human services. You've got you know folks that are that are doing fundraising and and a thousand other things. But it's a huge sector, lots of people, and so lots of opportunity for technology to play a role in their day to day lives. And the final one is that that if you look at just the United States market, you know over four hundred billion dollars a year for the last couple of years has been donated. So there's a huge amount of money flowing through the nonprofit sector, you know, from private citizens and from enterprise and from from foundations. So there's, you know, those are three different angles to look at in terms of the size and scale of the number of organizations you can could work with, the number of people that work within the sector, and then the amount of of, of money that's flowing through it, you know, to try to support the causes that people care about. So it's huge, and that you know that also means that. There's lots of lots of room for improvement. Yeah. So just let let me get this right. The four three four. So four million worldwide, third largest sector of employment in the U.S. and four hundred billion a year is donated. Yep. Those Justin, are some staggering numbers. It's, it's big, right? It's big. I, I had no idea, you know, how, how how large it is, and it's growing as well, right? You know, I mean, there's there's tw- twice as many nonprofits today as there were a couple of decades ago. So. So clearly, it's a growth sector and one that people don't pay attention to quite quite much because they feel like it's you know it's just a feel good thing and they feel like there's no there's no business opportunity in the nonprofit sector and those those are false assumptions. And so recently, I was just watching a TED talk, a couple of Swedish scientists talking about the the facts and changes around the world that perhaps a lot of people are not up to speed on, like the poverty level is the lowest time in history, you know, the three big killers in the world, whether it be famine. What's the other one? War and the third one, disease, are really being taken into check by a lot of the work these not-for-profits are doing. Yeah, yeah. There's tremendous progress that's been being made, and you know, Bill Gates and the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation put out some great YouTube videos about how how we should be optimistic about where we're going. Yeah, yeah. All right, but the but the reality is we're not moving fast enough. And if you if you just use those sustainable development goals as as one mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know barometer. There, there's no country that's on track to meet all the goals by 2030, which is the deadline. Yeah. Not a single country. Maybe one, actually, based on the, the latest report that just came out a few days ago that I haven't had a chance to get through. Okay. So, so yeah, it's true. I mean, there's tremendous progress. And, you know, there's still over, you know, over 1.1 billion people that lack access to clean water. Mm-hmm. Right? That's like one in seven. You know, there's still 260-something million children that lack access to, to education. So we've got a long way to go, and, uh, and so we're not done yet. And neither are, neither are the nonprofits. And, and that's the thing with big numbers, right? They, they fail to sometimes impact us that this is individual lives that it affects. That's right. I think it was Mother Teresa said that if I looked at the masses, you know, 
I'm overcome, if you like, but when I look at the individual, I'm moved to take action. It's such a great, great quote. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, in, in the tech world and with geeks like us, you know, we, we get enamored by the systems that we build and the progress that it makes and so forth. But the, you know, and this applies to any business, but certainly in the nonprofit world, you know, there's a story behind every record in that database, right? A life story of, exactly. of challenge and strife and and potentially even progress. So it's it's really, really important to remember that. So thanks for mm-hmm. thanks for saying that. Started my day off great. So what do you see as the biggest challenge in the next three to five years facing the sector? I think there are many. Uh, it's tough to just pick one. But I think I think the biggest issue, the biggest challenge is gonna continue to be fundraising. Right. At the end of the day, you know, that's that's where revenue comes from. The organizations that are there are gonna have a challenge. They've they've had challenges for many years, but it's really difficult to to raise money in, in the nonprofit sector, right? And nonprofits are incredibly adaptive. They're incredibly creative with the way that they raise funds. Mm-hmm. But to do what they do, they've just like any business or any organization, they've got to got to have support to make that happen. They've got to have customers. And and one of the big differences that that's that people don't think about with nonprofits versus the corporate sector is in in the commercial space, right? The person that gives you money is also your customer, mm-hmm. right? Like if you go buy something from Amazon, you give them money, they give you something. It's the same mm-hmm. person, same interchange. And then on profit sector, the person that gives you money is generally not the person who receives the benefit, right? And so there's a there's that duality in the nonprofit sector versus in the commercial space that's a huge represents a huge difference. And so you've got to you got to be able to find ways to to you know, have earned the trust of someone for them to give you that support, whether it's their time or their funds, and then you're going to give mm-hmm. the benefit generally to someone else. And so that's, that's a really difficult equation to, to work with. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in a world where there are more nonprofits and, and while giving is growing, you know, it's certainly not growing fast enough. And if you, if you look at the challenges facing the sector, it's, it's certainly fundraising. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Anything else? Well, I think the second one is the problem area we're, we're working on, which is meant to support, you know, fundraising efforts, but ultimately the, the outcomes that, that the nonprofits want to achieve, which is the program, program efficacy. You know, in a world where there are lots of choices about what nonprofits can do, there's more and more data transparency in the sector. That's one of the really interesting things that that the that live that you find in the nonprofit world that you don't see as much in the in the commercial space is the willingness to share. And so, you know, making the the best choices around what you do, what interventions you apply mm-hmm. for the benefit of the people, the environment, the beach, you know, the tree, the, yeah. the species, whatever it is. That's the second biggest change challenge in, in our book and that's the problem we're going to mm-hmm. focus on mm-hmm. excellent excellent so so let's now unpack the you know what you're doing around the non-for-profit accelerator with microsoft your isv experience because i understand you're you're operating it as an isv with threshold is that right yeah that's correct yeah we're doing work with tech for so microsoft tech for social impact around the accelerator and then we're also mm-hmm. creating our our own path that is aligned with the nonprofit accelerator as an ISV. Okay, so tell me about what this accelerator is. What was the the goals of creating it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what what version we're up to? Just give us a bit of detail around the whole process and what's available. Sure. 
Yeah, the the nonprofit accelerator is one of several industry accelerators in the Microsoft ecosystem, as you as you probably know. So there's mm-hmm. there's a health accelerator, there's a banking accelerator, there's an auto accelerator, there's an education accelerator. And so, you know, the nonprofit accelerator, which was the second one that launched behind health, is part of a broader industry focused strategy across the whole Microsoft enterprise. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the first thing to, to focus on. And each of the accelerators brings together a community of, of partners, customers, influencers, experts, et cetera, to try to take the, the raw common data model and common data service, which in my book is this, this secret sauce of the Microsoft technology stack. And it tries to, to take a, a big step forward to, to deliver industry-specific you know, entities and attributes or fields and mm-hmm. tables, business processes, mm-hmm. et cetera, to improve the interoperability of applications that are developed on across the whole spectrum of Microsoft technologies so that customers that adopt Microsoft technologies across a diversity of that spectrum, whether it's you know, a single application developed with a systems integrator or multiple applications coming from a diversity of different ISVs, that those things work together. Right. And and that's in my view is is really the strategy behind this is to to accelerate adoption within industries of Microsoft technologies and connectivity to third party party technologies and more rapid time to market and the the ability for organizations to adopt these technologies and, and know that they're going to work better together. Mm-hmm. So can you can you explain to me the common data model for yep. the non for profit accelerator? Sure. Yeah. What what are the big moving parts in that common data model? Yeah. So the common data model and the non profit accelerator are are two different things, and and they're very related. The the common data model is actually consumed by the non profit accelerator, but there's a really important important distinction that Tech for Social Impact is is that, and it's a key part of Tech for Social Impact's vision is that you know the the common data model for nonprofits does not carry the Microsoft brand right it is not a Microsoft technology and the idea behind this and this is really driven by Eric Arnold's vision who we spoke about earlier was mm-hmm. to try to bring together people across the industry to to have a conversation about what is a common data model that would help facilitate interoperability across the ecosystem but also you know, following the data all the way through the nonprofit business cycle. So from, you know, an idea about, hey, we've got an issue, there's a hazard, there's a disaster, right? We want to raise money for this initiative mm-hmm. to the funds coming in to that money being out, going out and invest, being invested, applied to a specific nonprofit program or intervention associated to a beneficiary and then brought back up transparently to the person that provided the support in the first place. So a real... Mm-hmm closed loop data model that allows for facilitation of flow of data and information across a nonprofit cycle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's really what the, the common data model for nonprofits does. And it's, it's open source. It's available on GitHub. It actually was, you know, they're the, the contributors to the common data model are competitors of Microsoft. They're partners yeah. of Microsoft. There's, there's a customer steering team and a huge number of people have taken part in that. And so the interesting thing about the common data model and the nonprofit accelerator, and, and you'd hear this from Tech for Social Impact as well, was that you know if you put this common data model out there, Microsoft Tech for Social Impact is wants to be a great customer of the common data model for nonprofits. 
And so the nonprofit accelerator incorporates that common data model into the Microsoft Dynamics 365 environment and into the common data service. So you first start with this closed loop, you know, business cycle in the common data model for nonprofits, and then you incorporate that into the Dynamics 365 environment. And now you're able to, to, you know, go forth with, with this, you know, kind of template application. It's not small, right? It, it includes about 75 additional entities that are nonprofit specific entities, things like, you know, donor commitment. Right, which represents a pledge between a donor and an organization to make a donation. It includes a full grant and award cycle. It includes program delivery and program results, and it includes a beneficiary architecture as well. So it's got 75 entities, about over 1,400 attributes, and, and it's developed in a layered model. So you actually can access the nonprofit common data model through the common data service. So you can build applications, whether you want to build Power BI apps or Dynamics 365 apps, or you want to access it through basically any other Microsoft service, or, you know, you can, you can just build applications in Teams with it as well, or in Modern Workplace and, and so on and so forth. So the real vision is about, you know, getting this out there to provide a common ground floor upon which interoperability is the key. And then enable the partner ecosystem to, to go apply their own creativity and ingenuity to, to developing applications and, and getting them into the marketplace. Okay. So the common data model is a, is a really a, a data schema, right? Right. That can be used across industry. What's available on GitHub? Is that automatically installable into the common data service? Yes. Yeah. There's okay. man, both managed and unmanaged solutions available on GitHub. And the nonprofit accelerator itself is available on AppSource. So you can download it from AppSource and install it in a Dynamics environment. Gotcha. What surprises me is that Microsoft called it Dynamics 365 Non-for-Profit Accelerator yeah. rather than just the Non-for-Profit Accelerator. Because if you've got the word Dynamics 365 in there, it tells me you've got to take a license dependency on Dynamics 365. And of course, with the new world we live in, really, there's no reason why you couldn't put it straight into the common data service without any Dynamics 365 dependency. That is an excellent point. And, and the release that just went to public preview yesterday on the first day of Inspire actually remo- removes that dependency. Hallelujah. And brings it back in. And, and that's that was really important for the business applications group and their overall strategy. So, And the vision is that you'd be able to access it across, anywhere across the CDS or common data service. And, and there, there are finance and operations use cases. There are Dynamics mm-hmm. 365 use cases. And, and there's, I think, about 60 partners now building applications across the whole spectrum. So it's, it's really yeah. gained a lot of momentum in the last seven months or so. So I see, though, that the three main partners that kicked this off was yourself, Threshold.World, yep. it was Avenard, and it was Blackboard as well. So speaking of those competitor involvement. Yep. Wow. Yeah. You know, Blackboard and, and Microsoft have a, a really, you know, a multifaceted relationship. And I'm, I'm an outsider in that. But we, you know, I can, can honestly say that, that both of those organizations and many others have, have been huge contributors to this, this overall effort. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a better together mentality that that I'm I'm sure was forged through many conversations long before I got involved between the yeah, yeah. the tech for social impact team and, and the Blackboard leadership and and you know but I've been on on the side the customer side of that where I've seen that 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 customers just want things that work right and and there are many different technologies that that can work 
and it's not always just about the tech a lot often it's about what the skill set is within the nonprofit and so you know this better together ideology that, that Microsoft and Blackbot and Avanade and, and many others are employing including us I think is really what the sector deserves and so it's great to see you know Microsoft have a big voice in that and to to be a convener in that sense and, and I think that they take you know that role of stewardship on really really seriously so so good so just just to I just I keep going back to the common data model because I feel that there's a lot of people that still aren't a hundred percent on how that differs from the common data service. Sure. And so let's, let's use a real example. So if we took, for example, the concept of a donor, yep. it's basically all the kind of fields, the data capture sets, et cetera, that you would commonly use no matter what non-for-profit you worked in when you understood the concept of a donor. So just like you have a real person that donates money or an organization a legal entity that donates money. It's basically what are the type of data sets that we need to capture that we can all agree on has a common way of labeling a donor. Is that would that be right? Very well said. Yeah. Very, Excellent. very well said. And and then all that we're doing with a common data model is dropping that into the technology infrastructure of the common data service, which involves, you know, compute multiple database technologies, multiple integration technologies, and really lights up the building of any application that serves the non-for-profit sector. Very well said. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. So how did your relationship originally come about with Microsoft and all this? Well, it started with that watching Eric Arnold move in. Okay. So, so that was the lead in. Yep. And then it started with the question, which was really, what are you doing over there at Microsoft? Mm -hmm. What's, what is going on? What's the vision? What's the plan? And, you know, there were many discussions, but I, I can honestly say that the, the one that I really remember was when this idea of the common data service really sank in for me, Yeah. you know, having spent 20 years building CRM systems, building technology on platforms, mm -hmm. you know, doing a lot of work with integrations, especially because most of my history was, was an enterprise, you know, where there were large systems or tens of thousands of users you know, when it really sank in to me that you actually could surface the data across any service and it could flow across the spectrum, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think I almost fell out of my chair because mm -hmm. I, I, I kept, you know, thinking about all of the conversations I was having with CIOs who in the past who were saying, look, I, I know you're innovative, like I get it, right? You know, and I know that the, the platforms you're working with uh, are going to have a constant stream of innovation, but I don't have time to evaluate all the options. I need, you to, I need you to bring things to me that work. Give me a couple of choices and show me how I can have the data flow across all of my different applications and be able to you know, ensure that my business operations aren't going to be interrupted and that I don't have to do transformations every single time I'm going to take a hop and go from, you know, from marketing to service. And so when I saw that that's really where Microsoft was heading and, and that, to me, I said, that's just something I got to be part of, you know, that's yeah. some, something that I want to do. I think that that, while it's a technical differentiator, I think that the business impact that it can potentially drive and especially for, for, for nonprofits that I, I really want to focus on for the rest of my career, mm -hmm. I, I think that's breathtaking. You know, I really do. You know, and it's it's something that that people are really getting their heads around now, and and I think that's what's really driving momentum towards Microsoft's initiative in space. So, what was the biggest difference between the the first iteration of the accelerator and and what's just been announced this week at Inspire? Yeah. 
Wow, there's a lot of differences. I, I think the you know the first version was launched at the the NetHope Global Summit in Dublin, and Justin Spellhag and, and Eric introduced it there. You know, the the biggest thing that's changed is the connectivity across the whole data model. Mm-hmm. The first version, you know, had components, full-fledged components for fundraising, grant management, program delivery. Right. So you could actually you could do all of those operations. You could build applications on any of those operations or you could customize the environment to, to accomplish those things. But since then, the, the team and, and I, with our contributions to it, we've really focused on the interoperability and, and the ability for a single donation and that support to flow all the way and very specifically down to a, a named beneficiary, whether it's a person or an entity. And then provide that connectivity back to the, the person that provided the support in the, in the first place. So really significant strides and a lot of conversations have taken place around, around creating that closed loop so that people can do anything they want across the whole spectrum and be able to, to have the data flow you know, almost seamlessly throughout, throughout the whole process. And, and if I could add another one, you know, there's, a, there's a real interest in standards-based approaches inside of the common data model for nonprofits as well as this, because that's one of the challenges, right? If we don't have a common language to describe the impact, it's difficult to be able to, to normalize the data and then therefore gain insights across it. So so we've incorporated a, an international standard called the IATI standard. How do you spell it? I-A-T-I, or the International Aid Transparency Initiative. I love it. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it's essentially, a, it's an open standard, and it's, it's a taxonomy for looking at the flow of funds and the impact that results from programmatic activities in the nonprofit world. And governments like the UK government and other European governments are mandating that the people that they fund report their outcomes according to the standard. Mm-hmm. And so the whole initiative is about transparency, which goes back to that theme of trust. And so there's an optional add-on with the accelerator that incorporates the, the IOTI standard and, and enables people to use the Dynamics 365 environment to, to report on the IOTI standard. Mm-hmm. The version that just came out this week has a button that you can click and it will actually generate the XML Fantastic. That, that can be consumed by the IATI reporting agencies. And so so I think that those are the, the two biggest things is, you know, the flow of, of funding and effort throughout the full cycle and the, the incorporation of, of standards that, that should make it easier for people to adopt and accomplish business goals that they, that they have as requirements. So good. So good. So what, what do you think is going to be the big impact that's going to happen with this accelerator, what Microsoft's doing? And also, what is the opportunity to ISVs, even yourself? What are you going to do now with, with what Microsoft's provided here? Yeah, maybe maybe a three part answer. I think I yeah. think the impact that it's going to have is is that it's you know first and foremost it started a conversation around interoperability that's been going on for a long time, but but this is a demonstrated effort, you know, with huge investment of time, effort, and, you know, convening on Microsoft's part mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and the other partners like BlackBot and, and ourselves to, to really bring people together to say, look, we're, we're going to do this better, right? We're going to make sure that things work together for the benefit of the sector. Mm-hmm. And so that that is something that people have been looking for. And, and that's why organizations like BlackBot are participating in it, because everybody knows this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So, and this... The second piece is, you know, I think that it's, it is enabling partners to accelerate their development and, and delivery of applications 
into the marketplace. So Mm -hmm. the opportunity for ISVs is that you don't have to go, you know, one, go figure out what is a data model for a donor, right? What is a data model for making grants and awards or scholarships? That's all there. And, and it's based on, you know, an industry a sector-wide collaboration based on, you know, decades worth of best practice. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. It doesn't mean it's going to be right forever because all these things are adapting. But it's a, it's a huge first start. I mean, if you think about the fact that it delivers, you know, 1,500 attributes across 75 different connected entities, that's a big step. You know, figuring out the data model for your application is one of the hardest things to do. And if you make bad decisions in that architecture, then your app's going to have really difficult challenges along the road. You're going to accumulate a lot of tech debt that you might not otherwise need to do. So this investment is is a really important one. And, you know, beyond that, I think it, it enforces or at least enables a level of interoperability between systems, which we're already seeing play out. There's a couple of, you know, brilliant use cases where partners have picked up the nonprofit accelerator and the health accelerator for, for health related nonprofit use cases. And and guess what? They just work together, right? Mm -hmm. They just work together and you don't have to, nothing breaks. They operate fine in the same environment. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing real creativity being employed. And in fact, one of the the winners at Inspire of the non partner of the year, though their solution incorporates a nonprofit accelerator. So if that's, that's not evidence of, of what's yeah. possible. I don't, I'm not sure what is. So good, so good. Yeah, awesome. Well, our our time's nearly up. With uh, there's, I feel like I could keep asking you a lot more questions. Such an interesting area. But uh, to wrap up, I just got some quick fire questions for you. So a bit different. So what was your first paying job? My father was an orthopedic surgeon and I did the laundry for his practice. So I washed wow. like, stinky towels <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. All the scrubs. <laughs> yeah. I wow. was a scrub. <laughs> wow. Yeah. If you could go anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would it be and why? I would go, oh geez, that's a tough question. There's so many mm-hmm. places to go. I, yeah. I think I would go to the Maldives because mm-hmm. it's always been a place I wanted to go see. And it may nice. not be may not be there forever, given what's happening with our climate. Okay, okay. So, what's a key highlight of your career? Jeez, <laughs> you ask tough <laughs> questions. These are not rapid fire questions. <laughs> I would say founding this company, Threshold World. You know, there've been so many ups and downs over the years, and I think that I think that this is really the first time that 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 I and my wife is is my co founder, and we get to sort of do things the the way that we really like to do them. And so this this has just been been a real pleasure and a real honor. So good. Who do you recommend as a guest for this podcast in the future? I think you should talk to Eric Arnold from Tech for Social Impact. Okay. Dan, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to do this? My email is really easy. It's just dan at threshold.world. And that email's up on our website. And feel free to find me there. I'm also on LinkedIn. And uh, look for me around the, the Microsoft world going forward. Thanks again for joining us on today's Dynamics 365 show. Full show notes can be found at nz365guy.com forward slash 114. I'm your host, Business Applications MVP, Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 Guy. For all the latest news, subscribe now at nz365guy.com. Also, if you have time and love the show, I'd really appreciate a review. Find NZ365 Guy on any good podcast player and leave a comment. Bye for now.